always very beautiful. Thank you so much. So this morning, we are going to be continuing our series in the letters of John. So the letters of John, who wrote the letters of John? John, right? It's not exactly rocket science. Yochanan is his name in Hebrew. And not to be confused with John the Immerser, right? But this is John the Apostle. And where did he write the letters of John and his gospel? Jerusalem? No? By now you should know this answer. Where did he write the letters of John? In Ephesus. And why did he write the letters in Ephesus rather than in Jerusalem? Because of why? So what happened in the year 70? All Jews were kicked out of Jerusalem, right? And so during the war, John, along with, this is why there was the scattering of all of the apostles. And John, the apostle, takes Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, and they flee to Ephesus, right? And it is in Ephesus, which had a, a very sizable Jewish community, and there was already, because of Paul's work and other people's work, already a presence, a, quite a large presence of believers in Yeshua within Ephesus. And so so that's where he lived out the rest of his life, and it's believed where he is buried. So John wrote his three brief letters to address conflicting theologies and behavioral concerns that were being taught and to bring a message of hope and encouragement. So we're in chapter 5, the last chapter of 1 John, and it begins, everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Messiah has God as his father. And everyone who loves a father loves his offspring too. Here is how we know that we love God's children. When we love God, we also do what he commands. For loving God means obeying his commands. Moreover, his commands are not burdensome. So he returns back to a theme that we see over and over and over again, which is the words of Yeshua, right? That everything can be condensed down and explained by reducing all of the 613 commandments by basically uh, encapsulating them in the idea of our, what Yeshua says, our love for God, our love for one another, the rest is commentary, right? That's really what he means by this. And this is what he's talking about. And he's saying, and how do we know that we are truly God's children? Because we observe his mitzvot, right? This is how we know that we are God's children. And he said, this is not a burden, unlike what we are often taught. This idea that this is not a burden obviously echoes the teaching of Yeshua himself in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are struggling and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The same idea of the yoke that is placed upon us, this is the huge discussion in Acts 15, right? When the question arises in this new found community, what do we do with all of these Gentiles who are turning to God? And it says that, uh, that there was a, an argument that arose among the followers that said, you know, that there were those who were going around teaching that those who are Gentiles need to convert to Judaism in order to be a part of us, to be part of God's people, so then they can participate in all of the blessings that come along with being a part of God's covenant people. And it says 
this was no small matter, right? That this was a huge issue. So they convened a council in Jerusalem that consisted of the apostles and the elders and other significant leaders in order to discuss this question. And one of the questions that they decided is that the yoke, right? Why should we place a, a yoke upon the shoulders of the Gentiles who are turning to God? Instead, Let's just send them a letter and saying, we'll figure this out as we go along. But what, one of the decisions we have made is the weight of the covenantal responsibility that Jews have is not exactly the same for Gentiles, right? It doesn't mean that they're free to do whatever they want. It just says, we're not going to place the exact same yoke on their shoulders that we and ourselves find difficult to bear. It doesn't say that we're free from it. It says we find it hard to bear, and we don't see this in Scripture that it's obligated upon them. Instead, let's send them a letter, and Moses is taught in the synagogue every Shabbat. Why the synagogue? Because there are no churches yet. <laughs> doesn't matter what most translations say. There are no churches. There are only synagogues. And there are only small groups, maybe in the diaspora, that are predominantly Gentile, but are still kind of connected to the synagogue community at this time. And it says that Moses taught in the synagogue every Shabbat, so we'll figure this out as we move along. But it's that same word. Why should we place my yoke upon them? It also reminds us this idea that the mitzvot, that the commandments are not a burden, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, where it says, for this command, this mitzvah, which I give you today is not too hard for you. It is not beyond your reach. It isn't in the sky that you should ask who will go up into the sky for us and bring it to us and make us hear it so that we can obey it. Likewise, it isn't beyond the sea so that you need to ask who will cross the sea for us and bring it to us and make us hear it so that we can obey it. On the contrary, the word is very close to you. It is in your mouth, even in your heart. Therefore, you cannot do it. <laughs> no, it says, therefore, you can do it. You can do it. And this is what John says, even more so through the power of the Ruach and the power of the Son that abides in you. In verse 4, he goes on, because everything which has God as its Father overcomes the world. And this is what victoriously overcoming the world is, our trust or our faith. We do overcome the world if who does overcome the world if not the person who believes that Yeshua is the Son of God? If we have victory as children of God, we do this because of our faith in Yeshua, right? In verse 6, he is the one who came by means of water and blood, Yeshua the Messiah, not with water only, but with the water and the blood, and the Spirit bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. There are three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. John is correcting a false teaching here that for whatever reason he finds it necessary to say that Yeshua came to us not only by water, but also by the blood, right? So what does he mean by this? There are a lot of interpretations of what this means. And I think that you could extend this to mean things like, some people say the blood is a representation of uh, the communion, right? And that the water is a representation of baptism. But let's go into Jewish typology and look at what John means here. First of all, he says water. What does water represent in scripture? Does anybody know? 
What's that? It means the Holy Spirit. It's life. Well, life comes through the Spirit, right? So in John 4, you see this theme appear over and over again in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 4, Yeshua encounters the Samaritan woman at the well. And what are they talking about? Water, right? Living water. And she said, Rabbi, get, I want some of this living water. And so he said, you know, what I have, you can have it too. And then in John chapter 7, Yeshua promises living water for those who believe in him. And what is the context of, this is where we really know what he's talking about. What is going on in John chapter 7? Let me give you a hint. It has to do with Sukkot. And the very last day of Sukkot is what? Nowadays, it's Simchat Torah, right? But that wasn't around at the time of Yeshua. What is the biblical last day of the festival of Sukkot, the Feast of Hoshana Rabbah, the great Hoshana. And what was the culmination? Why was Hoshana Rabbah such a big deal? Because we do Hoshanas, these prayers, through all of Sukkot. On Hoshana Rabbah was a significant ceremony called the Simchat Beit HaShoeva, the rejoicing of the, the water-drawing ceremony. And at this time, uh, basically in a nutshell, that there was a huge parade that would happen as they would go to the pool of Siloam. And there was a huge parade in which the priests would take the water from the pool of Siloam and they would lead it through the streets up onto uh, the temple. And during this time, the people would sing and they would dance and there would be this huge festival. People, according to the Talmud, they'd be juggling torches and it would be just a crazy time to where the rabbis say, Anyone who has never experienced the Simchat Beit HaShoeva has never experienced true joy in their entire life. Basically saying, like, if you've never seen the Simchat Beit HaShoeva, like, forget about it. You think you know joy? You don't. <laughs> so just kind of alluding, not that it's literal. Like, we, there are a lot of things that give us joy. But the idea is that this was such a joyous event. And it's the one time in which Rather than wine poured on the sacrifices, it was water. Why? Because during the rest of the time, we needed the symbolism of the wine, which did represent joy. But on Hoshana Rabbah, that joy is realized in its fullest extent. And it's also represented, the pouring of the water is the outpouring of the Spirit. Rabbi Dr. Mark Kinzer connects John's linkage of purifying water and the empowerment of the Spirit, which he sees as an echo of Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 28, where it says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries, and I will bring you to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you will be clean from all of your uncleanness and from all your idols, and I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your body, the, and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Then you shall live in the land that I gave to your ancestors, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Here in Ezekiel is the connection between the water and the outpouring of the spirit. So water is not only that which gives life, it's that which gives life through the power of the Spirit. And what does he mean by blood? This should be a little more obvious. 
The blood is obviously a symbol of the physical nature of Yeshua culminating in his sacrificial atonement. The salvific mission of Yeshua was achieved by both water and by blood and not by water alone. John is correcting a false teaching, a misconstrual of water only by those who would say that, uh, if you remember in our discussion of 1 John, one of the, the heresies that we talked about was either on one side, you had those people who said, and these were the docetists, right, who said that Yeshua only appeared to be human, but in reality, he was only divine. He was only of the spirit. And then you had on the other side of the heretical, I mean, there's a lot of heresies, but the other side of that said, and this is one that's very common within the Jewish community today, is that Yeshua is not divine in any sense. He is only human, right? And we know that the reality is that the answer is in between, that Yeshua, and this is the difficult thing to understand, he is both fully God and fully human. And so John is arguing against those who would say Yeshua is only of water. He is only of the spirit. And so he's got to correct this by whatever the exact teaching was by saying Yeshua is both of the spirit and of the blood. This is why Professor Karen Jobes writes, John mentions water first because he does want to affirm the salvific connotation represented by water as a metaphor for the spirit but he also wants to add it to the essential element of blood. The spirit is essential because he applies atonement to the believer's life, but the blood is essential as the objective basis of that atonement. She goes on to say, while the spirit is necessary for salvation, his role is always coupled to and anchored in the earthly life of Messiah Yeshua, sent by the Father as an atoning sacrifice for sin. We go on in verse 9. If we accept human witnesses, God's witness is stronger because it is the witness which God has given about his son. Those who keep trusting in the son of God have this witness in them. Those who do not keep trusting God have made him out to be a liar because they have not trusted in the witness which God has given about his son. And this is the witness. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. So it talks about that there are three witnesses that we can rely on, right? And the three witnesses are the spirit, the water, and the blood. And then it goes on to say, challenging those who have this, whatever the false teaching is that John is confronting by saying, these people claim that they are the ultimate witnesses, yet the real witness is from God and through his son. And so you can trust the apostles who have been given this proper teaching. God is our ultimate witness. And what is it that we witnessed? In verse 11, it says, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. In verse 12, we go on. Those who have the son of God has, uh, those who have the Son have the life. Those who do not have the Son of God do not have life. I have written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life, you who keep trusting in the person and power of the Son of God. This is the confidence, that we, the confidence we have in, this, in his presence. If we ask anything that accords with his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, when we know that, we ha- that what we have, what we have asked from him. This is an idea of the confidence through the son, right? That we can ass- be assured that when we pray, for those who have the son and believe in the son, that God hears us. And he says he answers us. It might not always be in the way that we expect <laughs> or in the timing that we expect, but we can at least be assured that God hears us. He goes on in verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not lead to death, he will ask and God will give him life for those whose sinning does not lead to death. There is sin that does lead to death. I am not saying he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. All right, what does he mean by this, right? Obviously, he begins by saying, if you see your brother sinning, you're supposed to go to him and correct him. This should be obviously done through the process given to us in Matthew 18, right? If your your brother is sinning, that you go to that person privately and you try to work it out with them. If that doesn't work, then you bring somebody else. And then finally, you bring them before either, what it means by the congregation is that can either be the entirety of the congregation or the leaders of the congregation in order to work this out. But the point is, you have to deal with it. You can't let this kind of major sin impact the entire community, right? It's Paul's lesson that the littlest bit of chametz, the littlest bit of yeast, can affect the entire lump of dough. And then he goes on in conclusion, in verse 19, we know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Right? He's saying, we know that we are with God and the rest of the world we're also dealing with belongs to the evil one. Really belongs to God, but <laughs> the evil one has access. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us discernment so that we may know who is genuine. Moreover, we are united with the one who is genuine, united with his Son, Yeshua the Messiah. He is the genuine God and eternal life. John starts to close his letter by referencing the duality of God and the evil one. But he encourages us that through discernment given to us as followers of Yeshua, we are able to overcome influences that separate us from God and also from false teachings, which he keeps referring over and over and over again, right? Judging the spirit. What he means by that is judging the spirit behind the false teachers that have broken away from the community in Ephesus. And his final conclusion is this abrupt, after all of the love and everything that in hope that he's talked about, his very last line is, children, guard yourselves against false gods. Some translations say idols, but what is he referring to here when he says false gods? It's the same idea when he says the antichrists, right? Who are the antichrists and the false gods? These false teachers. We don't know exactly the details because unfortunately, John doesn't go into all of the details, but somehow, some way, and we'll see this even more in the next two letters, that there were a group of teachers who broke away from the community in Ephesus and were traveling amongst the congregations that were a part of this network of communities, and they were teaching these uh, teachings that had something to do with our understanding of Yeshua and his atonement. 
And so even though John is trying to encourage us to, uh, to remain strong, to be encouraged, he's also confronting these teachings that we don't exactly know all the details of, but he finds it so important to give a warning about what's going on. And with his conclusion, remember children isn't, uh, as we've talked about before, isn't in the kind of pejorative that we, uh, it's not a negative. It means just like all throughout the, the Bible, we read the children of Israel, the children of Israel, the children of other people, right? It's just kind of encouraging. It's those who are uh, in some context less mature than those who are of the mature. In con- so kind of round, as we wind things up, One of the very first things that John talks about in this chapter is our observance. And that observance is important, but that our observance should flow out of love. Our love for God and our love for one another. I tell all the people, I tell people all the time, trying to rush, can't you tell? (laughs) I, I tell people all the time that if your observance of the mitzvot where you've become so busy doing and doing and doing and taking on all of these things, if it's not drawing you closer to God or closer to those around you, then you're doing it wrong. It's not in the doing. It's somehow you've gotten distracted from where it flows from. So as we wrestle with the mitzvot, because because here John says and Yeshua says that our observance is important. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. But John also gives us a little correction to say, as we observe the commandments, our observance should flow from these two things which everything hinges on, our love for God and our love for one another. And while we do this, we have confidence in our spiritual journey, in our salvation, through our faith in Yeshua and the work of the Spirit. He's trying to encourage those people who feel discouraged and beat down and distraught not only through all of the horrible things that are affecting the Jewish people right now, but there's now also being added to that persecution against the followers of Yeshua. And he's saying that you can be assured that all of this is not for nothing, that everything you are going through has a purpose. It's a flood warning. (laughs) I already got that one this morning. Finally, God also gives us the ability to overcome. And he's given us the ability towards holiness, not perfection, but righteousness and overall victory. So as John wants to encourage us as we conclude his book, we need to be those who walk in the light. To always weigh what we are taught, to test the spirits, to not fall into teachings, the things that sound good, but we know This is really not kosher. (laughs) So let us be those who pursue what is right, what is holy, and what is good. Let us walk in the light. Rabbono Shalom, master of the universe. Anachnu ohavimotcha, we love you so much, Lord God, and we come before you on this Shabbat. That as we're working our way through these letters, that we would really take John's message seriously. that our spiritual lives 
come with responsibility. That's not all about warm, fuzzy feelings or somehow just a, a ticket to pass up everybody else. Instead, it is an obligation to be invested in the world around us, to love one another, to follow in your ways, and to not get distracted by teaching that goes against the foundations of Scripture. We live in a world where there's, it's so easy to get distracted. And not that some of those things are bad, but sometimes they're just a distraction. Help us, God, to take times to put down our cell phone, to step away from our computer screens, to avoid a newspaper sometimes. Because not that these things are inherently bad, but they can lead us from focusing on what we really should be spending our time in. For greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. We're supposed to be of the kingdom. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And so many of us have been spending all of our time in the world. And we've confused so many different things with the kingdom. Help us to pursue you, to love you, to love one another, to walk in your ways. Because according to scripture, this is really what it's all about. And that we would have confidence in knowing that no matter what we go through, that you are with us, that you walk beside us, and that you hear our prayers. Thank you, God, for giving us instruction that we don't have to, even as difficult as sometimes it seems, we're not completely left to wander in the dark. Through your word, through the guidance of the Ruach, we're able to pursue a life that hopefully the, is the one that you called us to. We pray all of this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. So please rise as we...